He's one of only two Americans in history to have served twice as U.S. Attorney General. I sat down with Bill Barr recently at the Legata Summit in Orlando to talk about the Chinese spy balloon controversy, the targeting of Catholic traditionalists by the FBI, and his best-selling memoir. Plus, I have a special announcement about a new project of mine, the first installment of the Turnabout Tales series. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Let's get started. He was both the 77th and the 85th Attorney General of the United States, serving President George H.W. Bush as well as Donald Trump. His recent memoir, One Damn Thing After Another, Memoirs of an Attorney General, chronicles not only the cultural and spiritual challenges we face as a nation, but it's a snapshot of the history he saw up close. I sat down with the former AG at the Legata Summit in Orlando, Florida. We had a wide-ranging discussion, including his take on some breaking news. Here's my exclusive conversation with William Barr. Bill, great to see you. Now, in a little bit, I'm going to tell you about the last time I saw Bill, which is interesting historically, but yeah. we'll get to that in a moment. Um, I want to start with your parents, Bill. Uh, your father was Jewish, your mother Roman Catholic. You write in the book about what you learned from them. Share with the audience the principal lesson you learned from them, and then if you would tell that great story of the day you were robbed in your apartment complex in River Park. Yeah and the lesson that that taught you, the image it gave you going forward. Right. <clears throat> well, I was, I was raised in Manhattan on the Upper West Side, right by Columbia, because both of my parents were at Columbia. Now, my father really didn't identify as a, a Jew. He was raised in a secular Jewish family, but he had agreed with my mother, who was a rock-ribbed Irish Catholic from first generation from Hartford, Connecticut. <laughs> <clears throat> who was the first to go to school and college and, and graduate school, he promised that he would raise the kids Catholic. And he respected the Catholic religion. He knew more about it than any Catholic I knew. And he, he we, it took us a long time to figure out, uh, he, he ran out of a lot of excuses as to why he wasn't receiving communion on Sunday. Pop, why aren't you going up to communion? Well, you know. But anyway, we finally figured out he, he wasn't, and, um, but he was the font of all uh, knowledge in terms of religion, and he always took the orthodox position. He would tell us, go read chapter 11 of Augustine's Confession. Go read this, go read that. And uh, so we were, we were raised uh, solidly Catholic, but not in a heavy-handed way, because they were both academicians. And their mantra to us was, understand what you believe, think it through, make your beliefs your own, understand why you believe something, and do not follow the herd. Do not go along with the conventional wisdom. 
and, and stick to your guns. There will be times where you might be the only one who thinks something, and just because everyone else thinks differently doesn't mean they're right. And one of the interesting things is, and when it came time to go to high school, you know, I had, could have gone to Regis, the Jesuit school, or Horace Mann, which was sort of this, you know, very prestigious private school, but it was almost all Jewish. And they sent us to Horace Mann because they said, you know, it would be good to learn how to defend, be different, understand, mm. you know, that people have different views, and be able to defend your own position. So that's, mm. that's how I was yeah. raised, and there were four boys, and, and uh, they did a good job, at least with my younger brother, Stephen, who is a theoretical particle physicist, and, and some of you may read his stuff in First Things and National uh -huh. Review. He's a, you know, his yeah. big area is the compatibility of religion and yep. faith and science. So yep. at least they did a good job with him. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> I think they did a good job with you too, Bill. Tell me, tell me though about that story. You are leaving your apartment building in River Park. You are yeah. robbed by a group of thugs. Right. What yeah, happens so, and what did that image tell you? So we walked every morning to our Catholic school, and people don't do that, I guess, nowadays, maybe in New yeah. York, but it was several blocks we walked. And I was going with my brother. I was about five or six or something like that, and my brother was four year, three and a half years older. And we got down into our lobby, and we were heading out, and some thugs came in. Now, at the time, they seemed like really old kids, but they were probably 15 or 16 years old. But they stole, you know, everything we had, our hats, our gloves, you know, they went through our pockets and took everything. And meanwhile, I pushed the button, and I said to my mother, you know, we're being robbed. And the kids ran out, and next thing I know, the elevator door opens, and my mother comes storming out in her apron. <laughs> and it's the middle of winter, and she just charges outside, and she starts, which way did they, which way did they go? And so we went up there. <laughs> And we're, we're trotting after her, and she's just walking down the street in her apron. Everyone's looking over at her. She actually caught up to them, and she grabbed one of them in full flight, dragged them to the cops. But that was New York in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we need more of those we mamas. Yeah. We need a few more of those. Yes. Now, I'm going to skip over a few things. You went to Corpus Christi Parochial School. You said it was the most influential yeah. formative experience of your life, profound formative influence on my life. Other than my parents, yeah. Why yeah. and how? What? Why? Why was it so I don't know. It just, uh, you know, there weren't many Columbia families that sent their kids to Corpus Christi. It was mm -hmm. a very mixed group, a lot of middle class, working class Irish, Hispanics, and so forth. It was taught by nuns who in those days were really a great teaching mm -hmm. order. Now they're all into social justice and you know, they, they, sort of, they sort of waddle around their mother house doing good, but they don't teach at schools anymore. But anyway... Well, there are a few Dominicans in the house who <laughs> might disagree, Bill. But, but these, these nuns were the best. They, they did a great job teaching. And one of, my, one of the people who graduated from that school, you're all, not all of you, but many of you are of my generation, and you know George Carlin, mm. the comedian. He was the other distinguished alumni of Corpus Christi School. And, but, and he, hate, you know, he turned against the church, very acerbic about the church, but if you go and look at his stuff, he always says, but the greatest thing was Corpus Christi School. You know, they taught you how to think for yourself. They taught me, I was so independent, I actually turned against the church. But anyway, it was, it was a great school, but also I fell in love 
with the aesthetics. Mm. I don't want you to think I'm shallow and just taken in by all the aesthetics, but uh, to me, you know, serving mass, serving the high, Corpus Christi was known as, for its beautiful liturgies and its professional choir. And just serving at those things, it was just, it really emphasized to me transcendence, reverence, holiness, and, mm. it, and it really took a hold on me. Mm. What I did not know, I'm going to do one little. Yeah. He's your, a TV guy. Your wife will call me when that re-airs on TV if I don't yeah. fix that. I know it. Thank you, Chris. I'm, I, had, I did that for you. Um, what I didn't know about you, Bill, is that you are a China scholar. Yeah. You spoke Mandarin, which I did not realize. Mm -hmm. I want your take on what we're seeing now. This whole interview, we're going to go back and forth a little bit. Uh, what do you make of these Chinese spy balloons that are now, apparently we've got so many of them, Bill, they have their own hunting season because <laughs> right. they, yeah. they, they shot one down the other day That's over right. Alaska. We found another one today. Yeah, right. They're proliferating. It may That's be the right. only thing reproducing now, Bill. Right. <laughs> well, That's right. But what... But your take on the slow roll of the Biden administration to identify what this was and to intervene. And they claim the Trump administration, this happened under the Trump administration, did it? Not, not, I, I wasn't aware of it. I was on the National Security Council. We were never told it happened. And I guess they're now saying that it happened, but no one ever told the Trump administration. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I went into Chinese studies. because My father had been in OSS during World War II. I wanted to be in CIA. That was my career goal. Everyone else was taking Russian studies. And I, who was, you know, it was, all the Russian programs were crowded. This was the Cold War, obviously. And I said, well, the other enemy is China. So I'm gonna start studying Chinese. And mm -hmm. I studied, and I got my BA and MA in Chinese. And the CIA hired me, you know, as soon as I got my BA. Uh, and so that's how I got into it. That was my first job at CIA. And, and I felt then, I feel now, the Chinese are, are, are the major challenge to American uh, technological leadership and, and political leadership around the world. And I'll just put it in a nutshell. People are underestimating how aggressive, uh, committed they are to displacing the United States, and they want to publicly humiliate the United States and make it clear that they have now moved into the driver's seat as the world leader. Mm. And I think for the next two or three years is a very high risk of conflict with the mm. Chinese. It's the most serious foreign policy problem we face. What do you make of the president's comment the other day that this is not a serious breach, not a major breach? The well, spy balloon that apparently are moving like the Skyway in Disney. I mean, they just keep flying <laughs> in. You know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the Biden administration. Uh, really? <laughs> Hold on. Uh, you know, number one, you know, th th their policies generally are too, you know, are not, are not strong enough. But aside from that, they're ditherers. Mm -hmm. They're always two or three steps behind. The reason we have a war in Ukraine right now is because it was sort of obvious it was coming. And instead of moving quickly to put in forces and equipment that would have deterred the attack. Right. They waited till it occurred, and now we're, you know, we're putting in stuff, usually several months after it should be put in. So they're always, they dither, they're afraid to make decisions, which is one of the common mistakes now in government these days. And, you know, they, they didn't do the obvious thing that had to be done with the balloon, which was shoot it down very quickly.
and make it clear we're not going to tolerate that kind no. of thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, they, they, they are, uh, the, these balloons can pick up a lot of intelligence that satellites cannot pick up. And the fact that they're putting so many over the United States, over our bases, picking up communications and stuff, is a serious problem. They have tremendous artificial intelligence and intelligence capabilities. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're just sucking up all this information and putting artificial intelligence to work on it. And uh, it's, it's a major uh, danger for yeah. us. Well, you, you leave the CIA. You met George H.W. Bush <coughs> at the CIA. Yes. Tell me about that experience of working for him there and then as his attorney general. And what did you take with you on your second stint of attorney general from that experience? Was there anything you could take? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah it's one of these things, uh, caprice in life. You know, I, I was going to law school at night when I started. My wife and I, Christine, who's here tonight, she. <laughs> I was the social chairman of my fraternity at Columbia, and I invited her school, Mount St. Vincent, up in Riverdale, New York, and that's how we met. Huh. Uh, and I interviewed her on the front steps of my fraternity during a break, and I found out she was not only, she was Catholic, but she was also a Republican. And I said, "Okay, those are the two boxes I need checked. So. <laughs> Will you marry me?" <laughs> But anyway, we... we uh, In we, New York, that's no short order. That's a... she, was, she was 21. I had just turned 23. We got married at College of Mount St. Vincent, drove down to Washington and started at CIA, and we've been together for 50 years. Uh, uh, so. <laughs> but my mother, being a child of the Depression, and she, wanted, she said, I don't know about this CIA stuff. You need a profession. And so I decided to go along with it and go to law school at night. So I was going to law school at night while I was working for CIA. And lo and behold, the investigations of the CIA started. They moved me from the intelligence directorate up to the office that was handling all the investigations on the CIA side. Mm -hmm. And George Bush comes from China. He was our ambassador to China. Mm -hmm. He comes to take over the CIA. And I started spending time with him when he had to testify on Capitol Hill, you know, preparing him and going up with him. And he knew that I was a China specialist. And, mm -hmm. and so we established a relationship. And later on, uh, when, when he was vice president and I was working for Reagan in the White House, we rekindled our relationship. And then when he ran for president, he asked me to help out on the campaign and then I was one of the one of the first appointments he made over at the just in the government, but over to the justice. And department. what did you learn from that experience about the interaction between the attorney general and the president during, was, what? during the George Bush presidency? So, and was any of that applicable to your second round? No, well, he was a very different kind of person. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah. How so? Well. <laughs> It, there were very subtle differences. <laughs> Explain. We got 31 minutes. Bush, Bush was uh, just the consummate professional, and his attitude was get the right people, trust them to do the job, leave them alone. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fact that he appointed me 
at the age of 41 to be attorney general, uh, I said, you know, I don't get you anything politically as attorney general. And he said, the best politics at the Department of Justice is no politics. Mm -hmm. I thought, that was a great... <clears throat> So he completely left me alone to do the job, and he had confidence and trust in the decisions I made. And he was, of course, the consummate gentleman. Mm -hmm. uh, Trump was, was uh, I knew what I was getting into with Trump. I why, had, did you, why did you, you were not a fan of Donald Trump when he was running? No, he was not my candidate. Okay, but you decide to go back into a second White House, into a second Attorney General chair. Why would you do that? What persuaded you? Well, that was two years into the administration. I had supported Jeb Bush. I, then I supported Marco Rubio when Jeb dropped out. But when Trump became the not, I was never a never-Trumper because I felt we were at a critical juncture. I think after my own view, after eight years of Obama, we were going over the cliff. Uh, and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party had seized power and, and was picking up. And I felt the Republicans had to win this election or we'd get into such a deep hole we couldn't dig out. So when Trump got the nomination that night, I signed a, ch a contribution to him and I supported him. And I hoped he would rise to the occasion. And in my book, I try to be balanced. I think he, he did a lot of good things. I think I gen his policies were generally sound. Mm -hmm. he, he had guts in taking on issues that everyone else was just sort of kicking down the road. He would stand up and, 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 and take clear and decisive positions that represented sort of common sense and what a lot of regular Americans believed. And he could take a punch. He just kept on going. So he had a lot of good things going for him. He had some very profound flaws as well. And I was perfectly aware. I didn't know him, but people I worked with in New York said, do not get together. And this guy is a real scuzzball. So, and, and he's difficult to work with, and he ignores his lawyers, and so forth and so but on. But you thought there might be a constitutional crisis right. because of what he was up against. Right, so the reason I ultimately went in is because I felt that I was very suspicious of the Russiagate thing, and I felt that this could be a, I was concerned that this was a coup, essentially, going on, mm. and they were trying to drive him from office and use the criminal justice process to hobble his administration, which I think was, in fact, what was happening. But at the time, I was very suspicious of that. And a lot of the mainstream lawyers had sort of backed off because of his temperament and his controversial mm -hmm. nature. No one was sort of stepping up. And I was pushing other bodies out in front of me. I knew, I, <laughs> I, I knew he needed another attorney general after the midterms. And I was recommending other people. How about this person? How about this person? <laughs> I was trying to get some senators to back some other people. But it kept on coming back, like, he wants to talk to you. And I eventually, my, my wife said, look, you're not going to change this guy, you know. He's his own worst enemy and so forth. And everyone was initially opposed, but it soon became obvious that of the people that were being considered, who could get confirmed. Mm -hmm. And I felt, you know, I could help stabilize things. I felt that we were headed toward a potential constitutional crisis. I thought he should be given the chance to have his administration. Mm. And so I, I went in to try to help stabilize the situation, which I think I did. And I think he had a shot. Um, <laughs> Donald Trump, we talked about this a little earlier. Donald Trump has an amazing ability to, he sees the externals in the way that the voter and common people <clears throat> see the externals. Tell people, you would walk in on occasions and he'd go, 
look at you. A wonderful, you look like an attorney general. Yeah. You look great. He's good, isn't but, he? But tell them, he, he... I'm having flashbacks. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Only I won't get you a subpoena. But right. tell me, he gave you a little beauty advice once. Oh, yeah. Share that with everybody. This is wonderful. You will he, take, get your notes out and take it down. It is legitimate to think about optics, and he was very focused on how things looked on television. And, and so, you know, he was, when I was up for my hearing, he, he got mad because he felt I was being too nice to, to Mueller in my confirmation hearing. And his wife, Melania, said, are you crazy? This guy, look at him. He's central casting. He looks like attorney general. And he's doing a great job, and you want him to get confirmed. And he told me this story later. He says, you do, you're right out of Central Cat. You look good. And, and whenever, I'd go in, whenever I'd go on TV and, and have a sparring thing with the reporters and stuff, I'd always come back in. And he's always watching it, because he watched Fox News 24-7. And it wasn't like, you made a really good point. It was like, you looked good. You looked good. <laughs> you looked like an attorney general. <laughs> Right, and, and so one day we were sitting in his office, and I forgot exactly how the top, you know, I, I think, you know, so someone made a comment about me being big or something. I said, yeah, well, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little on the stocky. So, you know, he said, no, 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 no. He said, whatever you do, do not lose too much weight. You, he said, you're like me, the, the, you know, it fleshes out your face. Your face looks young because you have those, you know, it fleshes it out. If you start losing weight, your face is going to sag. <laughs> Don't do that. So I gained 20 pounds working for Trump. See, you took the advice. <laughs> One way or the other, he inflicted that advice on you, I think. Right. Um, as Attorney General, you initiate a probe of this Russia Gate investigation. Yeah. Right. And I won't bore everybody with all the details, but. Carter Page in the Trump campaign was surveilled. They dragged General Michael Flynn in for a conversation that they already had the transcript to, but they send the FBI, Comey, the former FBI director, sends the FBI in to investigate Flynn. You knew they had the transcript. Mm -hmm. What did you come, at the end of the day, when you looked at all the evidence, you determined what about the Mueller probe and what do these people need to know about that probe? Well, my, you know, as I said, I was suspicious going in about what this Russiagate stuff was, but people were acting so cocksure about it, you sort of said, they, maybe they have something. Maybe I'll be surprised at the end of the day. My bottom line conclusion, this thing was a hoax from day one. They didn't have a, a legitimate basis for investigating Trump. It's, you know, I think obvious, there's obvious information that suggests that Hillary Clinton's campaign dreamed this thing up to try to tar Trump. For some reason, and I hope Durham is able to shed light on this, the FBI jumped on this theory and went hammer and tong after, after Trump and you know, was using electronic surveillance and other things. So um, I waited until Mueller was done. Mm -hmm. But my view was, as Attorney General, part of my responsibility is to make sure that there's no abuse of intelligence powers, especially in our political process. Mm. And so I wanted that to be reviewed. I, want some, I wanted someone to look at it, so I brought in John Durham to look at it. And you would have thought, you know, this was some act of, you know, 
Nazism or something that I would want to say, how did this thing get going and, and why was it that you were spying on a presidential campaign? First time, you know, this has been known to happen. And, uh, you know, if the shoe was on the other foot, you and I know that all the civil libertarians would have been up in arms, that this would have been a great scandal. Uh, so that's why I did it. I felt we had to get to the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. and, and, of course, that, that probe is not complete yet. Durham has still... Right. Well, one of the interesting things that's come out, in, you know, and which Durham tried to bring out in the different unsuccessful prosecutions, I think they were legitimate prosecutions. You know, the Russians were aware of Hillary Clinton's whole effort to tar Trump. They were aware of his, her, her retention of uh, Steele, Christopher Steele, the MI6 person. The Russians knew this was going on. And it turns out that the guy who Steele hired to be the source of all the, inf the, the conduit of all information that went into the dossier was suspected by the FBI of being a Russian agent, a member of their intelligence service. So there was Russian so collusion. You would think someone would say, well, there's some red flags here that maybe this was a Russian operation. At least that deserve, there's more evidence of that than anything else. No one looked at that. The FBI didn't stop to look at it. Mueller, who was aware of this, didn't look at it. Someone had to look at that. Mm. So it was, it was collusion, just the other way around. Possibly. Possibly. Allegedly. Yeah. We have to be precise here. We have to be concerned about that possibility. <laughs> <laughs> at one point in a conversation with Mueller to you, he says, I have to do this to protect democracy. Yeah. We hear that line again and again. We hear it today being invoked politically. What do you consider the greatest threat to democracy, and what did you make of that comment when you heard it from Mueller? Well, I'd known Mueller, and, and he'd been a friend for 30 years. Uh, I thought it was sort of pompous and overstatement of the situation. But to me, when, when I hear about this stuff about a threat to democracy, I say, okay, you know what the threat to democracy is today? It's not that people aren't going to be able to vote. The other great element of democracy, before you even get to vote, is public debate and discourse. Mm -hmm. Because a people to govern themselves, even before voting on something, has to be able to debate, try to form a consensus. <clears throat> That's why the First Amendment is the First Amendment because it is essential to self-government. And the threat to democracy today is the squelching of public debate, different, the voicing of different ideas and so forth. And that's central to self-governance. It's central to democracy. And I, I feel that today, you know, the, the liberals like to make a lot of the McCarthy era the McCarthy era, those black days of the McCarthy era. I'm not suggesting they weren't bad. But I think any day in the United States today, there's more oppression of individual liberty than happened during the entire McCarthy era. <clears throat> the McCarthy era was focused, you know, Hollywood, people who were actually members of the Communist Party. But put that aside. Today, whether you're a a kindergarten teacher, the head of a university, a doctor, at a, a lawyer in a law firm, you lose your job and your professional career is 
is destroyed because you say something controversial like, there are two sexes, <laughs> right? I think I'm going to leave the stage with that controversy. <laughs> uh, let's talk for a second about religious liberty, which was such a focus for you as AG and the Trump administration. You gave a landmark speech at Notre Dame University when you were AG mm -hmm. that uh, you were labeled, I'm going to read this, uh, a tokamata in a business suit for suggesting that the secular project had become a religion. Explain what you mean by secular project and how has it become a religion? Only if I were a tokamata. <laughs> if only. <laughs> but anyway, so I think the source of almost all our problems today, the driver of it, the driver of the corruption of our institutions, the driver of the politicization of all aspects of life, the fact that all everything is now being brought down to one political plane, is the secular project, which is the, the uh, aggressive form of progressivism that has taken hold of the Democratic Party. And progressive, progressivism is just a cute fit phrase for, or word for essentially uh, sort of a bastardized version of, of uh, Marxist uh, material uh, determinism. And, and basically, you know, what it does, like all totalitarian ideologies, is it, 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 what Buckley, William F. Buckley used to say, is it immunitizes the eschaton. It takes the final things that Western thought has always believed are transcendent and in the, and in the spiritual realm, and it brings them, it immunitizes, it brings it down now that heaven is to be pursued on earth. It is an earthly project. It is to be accomplished within time. It is a collective fate. It's not that, that uh, you know, we each uh, seek salvation, but it's a collective organization here on earth, and we're gonna use the coercive power of the state to reach this perfect nirvana, and that's why it's totalitarian. It's ill-tempered because unlike personal salvation, you can save yourself and everyone else can go to hell. Mm -hmm. But if your project is a collective outcome, then people who resist it are in the way of salvation. They're blocking, mm -hmm. you know, the they're on the wrong side of history and blocking the progress of the human race. Mm -hmm. And so they're not only they're not only wrong, they're evil. And because this has to be accomplished in time, mm. there's an urgency to it. That's where all the ill temper comes, and this is where the corruption of our institutions come, because a lot of people don't necessarily buy into this intellectually, but this world, this world view is seeping into the culture. And the idea is that, there, that I can disregard the values of the institution I'm in, whether it be the media or law enforcement or the medical profession or science, and disregard the values of objective truth and so forth, because I am after a higher purpose. That justifies my departure from the standard. And that's what I saw in the Department of Justice. That's one of the problems, I think, at the FBI, people coming in who feel that they can justify what they do and depart from the standards of the institution because they have a higher purpose. Mm. And, and that's what I mean by the secular project.
And it, it has all the intensity of a religious war. Because unlike religion, which is tempered by, for example, Christ's repeated injunctions, you know, don't worry about the, what is it, the, the splinter in your, your neighbor's, neighbor's eye. eye when you worry about the log in your own, or don't be the first to cast stones, and so forth. You know, if you, the New Testament filled with all these injunctions against presumption, right? You don't have that in the secular field. Mm. That's how they, they feel virtuous, they signal their mm. virtue, and so forth. Yeah. And they have excommunications and burning rituals. at the stake. Yeah, burning at the stake. Mm. I, I want to talk about something. This is in the news the other day. Uh, the, an FBI document was just leaked, and it was entitled "Interest of Racially or Ethnically Motivated Violent Extremists in Radical Traditionalist Catholic Ideology Almost Certainly Presents New Mitigation Opportunities." That's the paper. It essentially classifies people who attend the traditional Latin mass as extremists. And it identifies the rosary as an extremist symbol, citing an Atlantic article. I mean, this would be like asking Donald Trump Jr. to describe Joe Biden and putting that in the FBI file. Mm -hmm. I mean, none of this makes sense to me. Your reaction to the FBI focusing and targeting traditional Catholics as extremists or mm -hmm. part of an extremist movement. So there are a lot of issues, like all institutions, I think all our institutions are going through similar things, and like all those institutions, the FBI has a load of problems, and there are multi, multiple different mm -hmm. problems. I would suggest you go and read the testimony of a former senior uh, FBI official named Tom Baker, and one by a, rec a woman agent named, I think her name was Parker, where they described the problems. It's not that the whole institution is rotten, but there are serious problems, including people coming in who have, you know, uh, they don't have the traditional law enforcement orientation, and they go off and do these. This thing happened in Richmond, Virginia, yeah. by an intelligence analyst. Now, in normal times, that person would have been squashed quickly. No one would have, they would have just fired that person. It was obviously crazy. Uh, but, but, uh, the fact that they have people like that in the FBI is disconcerting, but this is what has been happening for a while. And this started happening under Mueller. He wanted mm -hmm. to change the culture of the FBI. Now, the FBI used to recruit most of their people from the military and from police departments, and they were law enforcement people. Mm. And now they have a lot of crazy people coming in. Not all of them, but they just have more than their fair share who do these stupid things. And then, the problem as an institution is they've become careerists. A lot of their managers are afraid to rock the boat. They want to hold a position for two years, have no controversy, mm. and then move on to the next position. Well, you can't do your job with no controversy nowadays. And, and so they just allow this stuff to happen. Those are just some of the problems going on in the FBI. Mm -hmm. yeah. well, what about your reaction to the DOJ's reticence to investigate the 100-plus attacks vandalism, explosions at Catholic churches and pro-life clinics since the Roe overturning. Yep. Why the reticence to investigate and prosecute these crimes? So I think there are some of the posture of the department that we're all concerned about is top-down. Maybe not, uh, some, you know, some of it, was, I mean, I think this thing about going after the PTAs or the parents, that was a White House-driven thing. Mm. Um, I think in some offices around the country, the U.S. attorneys are very partisan and, you know, 
they, they want to go after the, the, the pro-life movement and things like that, and it's coming from them. Another type of it just comes from the rank and file. First time I was attorney general, it was after eight years of Ronald Reagan. It's a lot different institution than after eight years of Obama, which was the second time mm -hmm. I went in. And if I were to go to the department and say, look, we, we suspect this prominent Democrat, their son maybe, of engaged in some hanky, who would like to investigate that? Very few hands would go up. Partly because that's not their political orientation and partly because they don't view it as a good career move. But if you say, Let, let's go after this Trump associate, boom, everyone wants in on the act. And that, mm. that's one of the problems we have institutionally. Hmm. It's a problem. It is a big problem. Yeah. You spent a good chunk of your time as, as AG fighting these drug cartels and trying to build relationships with Mexico and our other partners in South America to not only control them, but to control them on both sides of the borders and battle them on both sides of the border. Where are we now? What happened when you left that office? And uh, what is your appraisal of legalized drugs in the United States and how that is fueling whatever we're seeing from these cartels? Is it? Well, I, I think it is. I think legalizing marijuana and legalizing other drugs is insane. I mean, uh, you know, and I put this at the doorstep of the medical profession because they're all willing to go after smoking and things like that, but they won't say peep about uh, marijuana, which is a serious health danger. And so we got that, and, and, it, and, and it is a gateway drug. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Okay, and, it will, and people who get into that not only have their own problems, and it, it's, you don't want a zonked out population, it's not good, but it is a gateway to harder, harder drugs. I'm opposed to that. Put that aside. Uh, Trump had good instincts on the drug war. Like me, he believed that you have to have not only the, the treatment side, the demand side, but you, you have to go after the supply. Because with a product like that, supply creates its own demand. And I can get into that. But, um, and the place to get supply is the head of the snake, which is the cartels in Mexico, through which now everything comes, all the drugs. And um, so he sent me down there to try to get this guy, AMLO, who's the president there, uh, is, a, is a real left-wing guy, and he doesn't want to go after the cartels, and he believes in hugs, not bullets. <laughs> but what's really going on, what's really going on is he's really sharing sovereignty with them. It's like a modus vivendi. You know, you, don't, you stop killing all these Mexicans, and you, you know, we'll leave you in peace so you can kill gringos by pumping poison into the United States. And that's what we have to worry about, and I think we're at that point. Trump sent me down there to disrupt that, and you know we had talked about it, and uh, it was to give them a chance to show they were really willing to get in the trenches with us and go after the cartels. And Trump said, if you don't do it, I'm gonna designate these cartels terrorist groups. And boom, for a few months, they cooperated. They went from zero extraditions to 60 extraditions. They started helping to some extent, but then COVID came along, they used as an excuse to shut down and, and they haven't really been helping on the drug war. Mm. You also have to understand, the, the, these cartels are now countries within, I mean, they're governments within government. Mm. 
within a state and they have so much money and they use force and terrorism to cow the government. They, they bribe the officials or they assassinate the officials' families, the cops and so forth. So they have terrorized Mexico. I don't think Mexico has the will or the means to do anything about the cartel without very substantial American presence and assistance. And so I think we're gonna to have to wait for a Republican administration to come in and just say, okay, you know, time is up. We're losing over 100,000 people a year. That was the casualty rate during World War II. That was the casualty rate during World War II. And these people are acting with impunity down there. It's just a non-sustainable situation. Mm. Uh, before we run out of time, I have to get into this. You as AG uh, restored, after a 17-year lull, you brought back the federal death penalty. You took some heat from that, not only from secular sources, but within the Catholic world. And they say, look, Pope Francis says it's inadmissible. John Paul said it's barely, you don't need it anymore, it's outlived its usefulness. What do you say to those critics about the use of the death penalty? Yeah, well first, the media pre presented it like I came in and said, oh, let's reinstate the death penalty. The death penalty had been put on hold by Eric Holder for five or six years simply because we had previously used a three-drug cocktail and one of the drugs became unavailable and he sent the Bureau of Prisons to figure out how we would administer the death penalty. When I came into office, the BOP, the Bureau of Prisons, submitted a report saying, here is a bulletproof method of, of administering it. Here, here the, you know, this is what we'll do and, and now here's our protocol. So the reason for the moratorium ended. That's number one. So. We had 64 people on death row, many of them put there by Clinton and Obama, who prosecuted them and sought the death penalty. And uh, so I reinstated the process for imposing the death penalty, and I picked the 13 worst people on death row, in my opinion, killed little kids and stuff like that, and we scheduled the executions. Now, one of the things people have to understand is the duty of an attorney general is to carry out the sentence imposed by the jury and sustained by the court. Attorney General does not have the right to change that. If a jury, if the sentence is 15 years, I don't get to say, oh, I don't think it's fair. I'm gonna only hold him in prison for 10 years. You carry out the sentence. And it's the same with the death penalty. So my view is if someone is opposed to the death penalty and refuses to carry it out, they shouldn't be Attorney General. They're not qualified to perform the duty. Second, I personally believe that it's important to have the death penalty available and used for heinous murders. And, um, I, and I won't get into the details. Some people have said my discussion of this is one of the best discussions of the death penalty they, they've read recently. Uh, and I explain why, as a matter of retributive justice, it is justified. And I, and I don't think when the clergy goes out and equates retribution with vengeance, they are serving the public interest because they're very different. And I explained the difference between revenge and a system that imposes proportionate uh, justice through a reasoned system of, of criminal justice. I also believe it is a deterrence and there are different kinds of deterrence. One of the things I say that I haven't seen many people point out 
is that in many of these crimes, there's a moment where the murderer is deciding whether to kill that little girl who they have just raped or kill the couple that they've taped to their chairs during a home invasion or kill the young college kid behind the cash register in the convenience store. Now, what does society owe those victims at that point? We're not there, the cops aren't there, but someone is trying to decide Right now, they're only exposed to prison time, but they're deciding whether to kill that person. And I believe it's the duty of society at that point to do everything possible to deflect that murder. And what is it that we want that criminal to hear being whispered in his ear by the government? And I say it's, if you kill this person, you forfeit your life and you will be executed. <clears throat> And I think a government and a society that is not willing to defend the innocent life by having that credible threat is not morally virtuous, they're morally bankrupt. That's my view. Now, I want to say one thing about right. the church's teaching. Yes, go get this. into that. Good. I didn't do this flippantly. I didn't take delight in approving these executions. I did have a sense of just, a feeling of satisfaction that I felt justice was done. But I did consult with some theologians and I read myself on this because you owe the duty to the church to take this under serious consideration. But there's a lot of confusion out there about the death penalty, partly bred by the media, but also by the hierarchy itself. The church there are two different questions. One is, is something intrinsically evil and can never be justified, such as abortion, rape, are examples of things that are intrinsically evil and cannot be done under any, justified under any circumstances. The church's teaching on what is intrinsically evil is binding on all Catholics. Other acts their morality is determined by the factual circumstances, including killing. Killing during a just war can be justified. Execution for 2,000 years was taught by the church's taught is not intrinsically, capital punishment is not intrinsically evil, it depends on the circumstances. That's called a prudential judgment in applying the circumstances, the moral teaching to the specific facts. The church's opinion on that is not binding on all Catholics. It is due deference and respect, but you can disagree. The, not only does scripture and, and, and teaching on natural law always supported capital punishment, but every doctor of the church, every father of the church has considered it, every pope that has considered it up to Pope Francis has been very clear. It is not intrinsically evil. It is a matter of prudential judgment. What Pope John Paul II and Cardinal Ratzinger Benedict taught was as a prudential matter, they think under modern circumstances, they don't agree. They don't think it should be rare. That was their position. Although Ratzinger himself said that it's the kind of thing that Catholics can disagree about. You can't disagree on abortion. You can agree on what's a just war, and you can, dis and you can disagree on, on, on the application of death penalty in a particular case. That was the teaching up till Pope Francis. Pope Francis's use of one term, inadmissible, 
in the catechism is rather opaque. I think, I, I personally do not feel it is possible to overturn 2,000 years of consistent, clear, and universal teaching of the church without seriously undermining teaching, current doctrine, on the reliability of the teaching magisterium of the church. But even if it could, I wouldn't read the word inadmissible to mean that we've changed 2,000 years of consistent teaching of the church. I think it's just a question of prudential judgment. And like Nino Scalia, who said, I have given serious consideration to the Pope's position and I disagree with it. So. Um, Cardinal, <laughs> Cardinal Avery Dulles, Cardinal Avery Dulles, the esteemed theologian, yes. used to say that it was, he saw it as a because the church, and I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but he saw it as the church in its mercy for souls was giving these very hardened criminals a definite time period with which to make themselves right with God. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the death penalty could be seen as a merciful act for them. Otherwise, they just stay in the criminal justice system forever and continue killing, and, which you know right. happens, the recidivism happens within and without the prison right. system. Right. So it's an interesting kind of take. I need to fast forward to really the end of your story with Donald Trump. The last time we saw each other on election night at the White House. Yes. And I walked up to Bill and uh, I said, Mr. Attorney General, what do you think? He's looking at the TV screens and he goes, I don't think it's going to end well for the president. <laughs> Let's this, take a picture. This was and before 10 o'clock. Yeah, that's right. Before He was out the room at 1030. Um, tell me what happened in the days that followed. Uh, uh, I know previously you described the president as someone who was frequently petty. Uh, at the end, you said he was manic and unreasonable, and it took an ungodly amount of energy and blood to keep him on track. Election night, he was not happy, obviously, and in the follow-up, he believed there was fraud. You looked into this. You had the FBI look into fraud, election fraud. You found what, and what was the president's reaction? Well, the president, right out of the box, even before the end of the election uh, night, 2 o'clock in the morning, he announced that because votes were all coming in at the end of the evening against him, this suggested major fraud, not suggested, he said there was major fraud underway. We always knew the votes at the end of the night would be overwhelmingly Democrat because those were the absentee, I mean, the, the mail-in ballots being counted. So he jumped the gun on that and uh, the stuff they started throwing out. And by the way, I wanted the president to win. I had sort of lit myself on fire and blew up my reputation. So at least that's what the left will say. Uh, to, 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 you know, to serve and try to make this a successful administration. I, I wanted him to win, but facts are facts, and he was told in April he was going to lose the election because he was alienating so much of the Republican and independent vote in the suburbs. And all the stuff they started, all the, I, I did look into it. It wasn't just asking the FBI to look into it. Yeah, that's it. what I'm going to ask you. Did you trust the FBI, well, given one all reason, you knew about well, them? Well, one reason I put my own hand in it and, mm -hmm. you know, made sure that certain people were talked to and what the facts were and, and pushed some of these things myself to get to the bottom of them was because a lot of them just didn't make sense and I was very suspect of them. And in fact, they all fell apart. I mean, they were, a lot of them were just wacky. And I go through a lot of them in, yeah, the, in, the, in, in the, the book. Um, and uh, I think, so number one, the stuff they put out, like the machines, the Dominion machines and all that stuff was just nonsense. 
and uh, all, the other 15 or so items that they really pushed had no basis. And I told them that. I told them it was BS, what, what this stuff was, the stuff that was going out there. And uh, so I, I thought the best thing to do was to leave with dignity, remind people uh, of all the accomplishments uh, he had had, and uh, leave with, you know, leave with some grace and dignity. And if he had done that, I think right now he would be unstoppable uh, for re-election. But he's not going to get the nomination, and I don't think he'll be re-elected. You don't think he'll get the nomination? I don't think so, no. Who do you think will? I think the most likely person would be, and I, people say, who are you for? I'm for whoever other than Trump will win, because uh, I think this is like 1980. I, I, people say we have so many problems, and we do. I mean, we have all these pots boiling on the stove just about to boil over. It's, it's daunting. And I say, you know, I'm not sure the answer on all of these, but I'll tell you the first step. The first step is the kind of victory we had in 1980. We're a decisive victory that brings strength into Congress that allows us to, to deal with some of these things. And, um, you know, Reagan spent four years uniting the Republican Party, and he won uh, 44 states, then 49 states, and then Bush won 40 states. Um, I think that if Trump were to run, uh, he would have the best chance of losing, and if he wins, he'll be a 78-year-old lame duck uh, who will barely squeak through in the election and will not have the power to actually get anything done. So I think it's a big opportunity, uh, and maybe our last opportunity, to, to put together a commanding victory that takes advantage of the fact that the Democrats have moved so far to the left. That opens up a lot of opportunity. Uh, and if Donald Trump is the nominee, would you support him? So I, this is what makes the left's head explode, because I say, well, yeah, if he's the nominee, then at the end of the day, I probably will support him, because to me, the greatest threat to the United States is not you know, a right-wing you know, authoritarian regime. It's the continued march of progressivism that has to be stopped. And I'm not going to vote for anyone like Biden who coddles the progressives. Your thoughts while I have you here on January 6th, which has continued to be evoked, do you believe President Trump intended an insurrection, intended to topple democracy, which is what we hear often, overthrow democracy? I think, I think what happened on January 6th, from what I see right now, was a, was a riot, uh, which by definition got out of control, and, and some of these elements there broke the law and went into the Capitol, and they should be prosecuted. I haven't seen anything yet suggesting the president was part of a conspiracy to use force to stop the count. If he was, that's a problem, but I haven't seen that, that evidence yet. But I think it was, I think he did uh, precipitate it and has moral responsibility because he led people to believe that there was something they could do on the Hill. Uh, you know, to help and to intimidate the vice president and force the vice president to do something. And he set up that situation. So it, to me, it was a shameful exercise. Now, do I think it was an insurrection? I don't think it was an insurrection from what I've seen so far. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can tell you this, I don't think the republic was in jeopardy yeah. for a couple of reasons. One, every, everyone did the right thing. No, no one went along with these, some of these crazy theories. No one in the executive branch, all the lawyers were solid, 
the departments were solid. The state governments and the Republican governors and Republican legislatures didn't break. Uh, and, uh, you know, all these uh, courts, the judges, even Trump judges, you know, did not shy away from the truth. And so the institutions are strong enough to protect us. Final question to this group assembled, uh, to these CEOs, to their families. What advice would you give them? For, what would you be watchful of and ask them to be watchful of politically, religiously, in the days ahead as they try to navigate this very torturous future or dangerous future? So I think, you know, what we lack in the United States in many quarters, not here, but in many quarters, is courage and the, and the ability to fight back and stick your head up and say, this is wrong and this is crazy. And, and people are afraid to do that. <clears throat> but courage is contagious, and once someone starts doing that, then we, you know, it'll build, because this is crazy what's going on. I mean, none of this, I mean, even three, four years ago, people would have been put in loony bins for, for saying this. Well, that's probably politically incorrect. Yes, you can't say loony bins <laughs> or loony tunes. I'm showing my, my, my vintage there, but. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, first of all, please thank Bill Barr for joining us today. Thank you, Mr. Attorney thank General. Thanks. What a pleasure. <laughs> One Damn Thing After Another, Memoirs of an Attorney General by Bill Barr is available at bookstores everywhere and online. And my thanks to the folks at Legatus for helping to make that interview possible. We are just a month away from a very special event, the release of my new picture book, the first installment of the Turnabout Tales series. It's called The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison. It captures a forgotten and largely hugely important bit of history. It'll resonate, I think, with anyone who's ever been told you can't or you aren't smart enough. You can pre-order it now from Amazon, EWTN's catalog, Barnes & Noble. We have a motto for the Turnabout Tales series, challenges faced, paths changed, and history turned. And that's what happens in every one of these books. The first, The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison, is really for the young person in your life and anyone who might be looking for some historical inspiration, and it could well inspire their own turnabout tale. Go to RaymondArroyo.com for all the details. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.